Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Strap in today, folks. We have the episode. As I say many times in this interview, I feel like what we discuss today will unlock everything. I truly believe that what we're discussing is the answer to, to accomplish everything you want, to get everything you want. Now, it's not easy, but it's not impossible. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, and Dr. Horvath is a neuroscientist with an expertise in human learning, memory, and brain stimulation. He has both his PhD and his MED. He has lectured at Harvard, the University of Melbourne, and over 50 other international schools. He also currently serves as director of the Science of Learning Group and Neuroeducation. A lot of the things we're discussing today are based off of his very short TED Talk, which I would highly recommend listening to. It's so cool. And after you soak everything up, his brand new book is Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. And we do cover the book at the end of this episode, but really what I focus on is this one key idea, the stories that you have about yourself, about your life, about who you are and what you can accomplish, directly impact the way you perceive the world and the way you act in the world. Now, it's not just the way you perceive the world. It's, in fact, how you experience the world. As Dr. Horvath points out, 
your body will actually change how it responds to stimulus based on your stories. So I want you to ask yourself, are your stories serving you? I'm so excited about this episode. It, it, there's a reason why it's well over an hour. And I want to know if we're on the same page here. I want to know if this episode gets you, like really hits you. So please email me directly at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you think, because if this is your thing, we have a lot more in store. Potentially, we can work with Dr. Horvath on creating a workshop to help us not only identify our stories, but modify them and accomplish those goals. Of course, you can always leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That really, really helps. If you haven't done that yet, just ask yourself, why not? It takes two minutes. You know, you can do it actually in the podcast app on your phone. Here it is. We talked to Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath about the stories you tell yourself, how they influence your prefrontal cortex, which then shapes everything else in your brain and your perceptions of the world. Remember, if you love this, you can learn much more about Dr. Horvath by following him on Twitter at JC Horvath and pick up his brand new book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. Enjoy. I got to tell you, and I've only said this about a few guests, but interviewing you is why we created this show. It, it really is. And I'm just going to get into it first. You have this TEDx talk, and we're going to link to it because for those listening, if you haven't seen it, go watch it after this episode. You hooked me when you said, you know, everybody thought for the longest time that we had one brain, that it was just this brain that takes in information. And in fact, we have dozens of mini brains. And then I was like, yeah. now you screwed up my whole view of what this thing is. So why is it that we have, uh, you know, dozens of mini brains and what essentially are they? So you've got to think, I, I like to speak evolutionarily. Now take that or leave that however you want to, but that's just the term I'm going to use. There was no trajectory whatsoever. The brain didn't know what it was going to be. So there's no way that the brain said, okay, we got nothing one day. Now we need thought. So let's just build a big brain. So instead what happens is it just kind of builds up through these little modules. It, like I almost think of it like grapes almost. You get one, then you get another on top of that that controls your arms. Then you get another on top of that that controls your eyes. So the brain was just kind of developing to match and meet whatever needs our body had at the time. And so because of that, now you get to us where we've got this brain up here, but really it's just dozens and dozens of independent programs all chugging away, doing their own thing. So if imagine you're looking at a bird flying across the sky, you got one bit of your brain that's processing the movement, totally different than a part of your brain that's processing the color, totally different than a part of the brain that's processing the edges, totally different than a part that's processing the concept of bird, all of these are happening in parallel at totally different spots, which raises that really interesting question that, okay, if I've got dozens of brains all independently chugging along, how does that come together to form one consciousness? Right. And that's the super fun question. Yeah. And I was aware that it wasn't just one lump that did everything. Oh, obviously, <laughs> you know, we've got the reactive brain, we've got prefrontal cortex, we've got different hemispheres, we've got amygdalas, we've got all that stuff. But what I like about how you just described it as twofold. One is I've never necessarily thought of them as almost potentially 
completely different, I don't want to call them organs, but different pieces of us, right? Yeah. Because they're lumped together, I never thought them as separate. And you're kind of talking about them being separate. The second thing is I love how you talk about it in the brain organized itself based on the needs at the moment. Is that true? Do we know that evolutionarily speaking? You've got to, I, I, I always giggle. So I, I teach neuroscience a lot at university and stuff. And I think the biggest story people come in with is, so the brain is the driver. Like this thing kind of leads us. And in truth, the brain is the most passive thing in the universe. It just sits there and it goes, okay, what do you need me to do? And whatever you do behaviorally, cognitively, whatever you ask of it, it goes, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. And it starts to tweak, change, grow to adapt to that. So the brain is always one step behind saying, okay, what do we need? And then it starts to build according to that. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I always, and people kind of get mad at me when I talk about it like that, but it is, it's not the driver. It didn't have a plan. It literally just goes, okay, now you have eyes. All right, I guess we'll process that vision for you. Here you go, big guy. <laughs> wow, that is, that is a very cool way to look at it. And I actually am wondering then, and again, correct me where I'm wrong here, but in my knowledge that the prefrontal cortex is the most recent evolution of it, and it is the part that makes us inherently human and does a lot of that higher level thinking. Do we know approximately when that part came online? And then two, what purpose do you think it was created to serve? Oh my goodness, I love it. That is a fantastic question. Um, so when it comes online, it comes online at different times throughout history, but I think you can confidently say once we started to become us, that's when it started to get its current function. So I mean, you could probably look back a couple hundred thousand years to all the different offshoots of, of Homo sapien and Homo erectus, and we all have versions of it. But ours, the one that we got now that we say, this is what makes us us, the way we think it develops, so it, it, believe it or not, your prefrontal cortex only sends out one signal, and that is stop. It's a giant inhibitor. It just turns things off. So we think what it did was somehow we had all these baby brains chugging along, and we had this body, and everything was fine, and eventually we got to a point where we said, okay, something needs to organize this. Something needs to control all these grapes. And that's what the prefrontal cortex does. It sends messages back and shuts things down, turns things off, tweaks things by changing how neurons are working so that you have this kind of overarching pattern maker in the front that can make sense of and organize all these fighting brains in the back. And there's where we say consciousness becomes really trippy when you say, okay, if the prefrontal cortex is the organizer, is the, the controller, the coder, if you don't have a prefrontal cortex – are you experiencing life or the world in the same one conscious way we are? Or are you experiencing 10, 15 different things and we just will never know because I'm not a dog. I'm Damn not it. a bat. So Jared, I, I can't that, even think about it. That was my question. That was literally my question. So you can't tell me you don't have an answer. Okay. Maybe you don't know it, but let's pause it here. Okay. <laughs> what was it like before that was there? If we have all of these things sensing the world around us and nothing to shut it off or rein it in, what is our best guess at what it was like? Well, I guess you've, you've got two options. So one is you, you have the purely reactive option where you say, OK, so if I hit your knee, you get your little reflex. Maybe that's how everything was. It was pure reflex. And any 
conscious experience was just kind of like bubbles. It'd come and it would pop and it would come and it would pop. And it wasn't consistent. It was just reactive with moments of, oh, that's neat. The other option is you had multiple consciousnesses. Conchai? Consciousness? (laughs) I love it. That's And there was a a guy who wrote a book. And to be honest, I think the book is kind of – wrong but the theory was really interesting it was called the master and his emissary and he said i he makes a point where he believes in the past humans had two very distinct consciousnesses and he linked them to the hemispheres but his argument was they would hear themselves speaking as separate from who they really were and so they would assign these voices different characteristics of gods and the pantheon of gods then emerged from this pantheon of consciousnesses that people were experiencing and so that's the second and you can see why that one gets really trippy really fast (laughs) we better pop some shrooms or something if we're going to be going down this rabbit hole i I, you know (laughs) this is so it's fun when you get to teach it you you have a good hour where you get to talk about this but it's really hard to maintain to hold on to because it's just so out there that you can talk about it conceptually that okay maybe like schizophrenia where i hear a voice and I don't know that it's my voice, so I can assign it its own characteristics. So we can kind of piece it together. But once you go too deep, you're like, no, I can't even I can't even conceptualize what that would be like. Right. Well, and you mentioned us not being dogs. And I apologize if this is a very basic question, but I know that we've uncovered how intelligent a lot of living creatures are. Dolphins, uh, certain types of monkeys, even some birds. But we yep. are the only ones with the formal prefrontal cortex, correct? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So every you can say every animal's got one. We've just got the biggest one. We've got the we're the only people with this just massive version of it. So is it in this case? Is it fair to say size matters? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. It, it, anytime you talk about the brain and size, I, my natural inclination would be to say no. But in this instance. I'm, you know what? Today, I'm going to say yes. This is where the growth of that seems to have driven us in a very unique direction. So, so these other animals, they have some form of a prefrontal cortex. However, yes. we, as far as we know, it's the size, shape of ours that adds what to the equation? I guess that's what I'm trying to differentiate. You know, a small one or, or a, a, a monkey's prefrontal cortex versus ours allows us to do what differently? It's so far as we can tell, and this is this is going to sound trippy language, but stick with me. Our size allows us to create narratives and stories which can feed back on and change the brain. So we know that other animals will have a prefrontal cortex because they can inhibit behaviors every once in a while. They're not great at it, but they can do it. Whoop-de-doo. The thing that we think separates us from everyone else is... So if you want to change your brain, you have to do something. So as soon as, let's say, I've never kicked a soccer ball, but if I start doing that two hours a day, every day for the next month, my brain is going to physically change to go, okay, he seems to be kicking that ball a lot. Let's adapt and make that easier, more efficient for him. In humans, you don't even have to do. With the power of the prefrontal cortex, so long as I sit there and visualize and think about kicking a ball, that's enough to change my brain as though I were actually kicking the ball. And that's what we think the prefrontal cortex in humans can do that we haven't been able to see in other animals is through pure thought, which we don't even know what that is. 
but through thought, we can physically send signals back, which will tweak the way the rest of the brain is organized, works, and functions. So this is where, if you say thought is consciousness, where we get this massive feedback loop where somehow in humans, consciousness can change the hardware. The software can morph the hardware, which when you really think about it is insane. It's, it's insane. absolutely crazy. It's insane. And that's what's at kind of the crux of your TED Talk. I think a lot of your work, what I want to spend the most time in this interview talking about, because I feel like somewhere in your brain or in this conversation is the keys to the kingdom, like literally the keys to success. <laughs> I really do. I feel like, well, look, if I can change the way I perceive the world, can I just tell myself the right stories to accomplish what I want to blah, blah, blah. I want to get into that. But... The other thing here is um, by talking about these stories that run our brain that we'll get into and the fact that yeah. as far as we know, animals don't do that. Does this mean that most animals are constantly in the present, whereas humans are almost never in the present? You can you made beautiful point there. I always say so. Take your listeners right now. None of your listeners are actually listening to us at this moment. And don't don't take that personally. What I mean <laughs> is that they're all about one to two seconds in the future predicting the words that are going to come out of my mouth. And so long as those words are even remotely close to what they think it should be, they live in the prediction. So this is that power is if the story can drive the machine, then that means we have to be living most of the time in the story, not in the reality. So this so you're, you're absolutely we call it mental maps, but essentially the way we we traverse through the world is we just draw on our experiences. If you're a baby between say zero and five, we think you're highly present. If you're an animal, we think you're highly present. But once your brain starts to modularize and you have a sense of how the world should be, we think you live in that prediction. Now, and half the fun now is how do I kick you out of that prediction? If right. I know the vast majority of the time people are just in their head, what are things I can do to flip you into this moment? And in that instance, now I can start to tweak your story. If I can get you present thinking like a dog, now I can tweak your perceptions and change your prediction and change how you understand the world. Oh, God, I just got the biggest case of goosebumps. Wow. And and this is why. <laughs> oh, my God, this is freaking me out. And two things. Um, one is seeing that in action, seeing the presence of a young child is mind blowing. So I want to start yeah. there. Uh, I have a four year old the other day and you know, look, he's smart, but I'm smarter, hopefully. Right. Um, <laughs> but the other day, my wife comes downstairs and within five seconds, my son goes, mommy, I like the color of your nails. Now that is freaking me out because honestly, I couldn't tell you in 10 years of knowing her ever the color of her nails. Right. Yeah. But, but, it, it hit me like he's so perceptive. He's so in the moment. There is nothing else like bills or health or whatever crowding his brain that he can say when she went upstairs, they looked one way. And when she came downstairs, they looked another. And that is proof of this present awareness that is insane to me. That's that's a wonderful example. And that 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 is exactly it is they don't have predictions about what nails should or shouldn't be or yeah. my wife for 10 years has always had pink nails so i'm not even going to notice when she changes it 
he's just there. He says, yeah. okay, what's, what's going on directly in front of me? And it caused this paradigm shift because right then I said, how much of the world am I missing? And that ties oh. back to exactly all these things that I'm so excited to talk to you about is how much of the actual world, the beauty, the opportunity, the amazement are we missing due to, as you talked about these mental maps and these stories, do you think we are really, really limiting our experience by being constantly in the future? Uh, oh, it's, it's a trade-off. In, in one sense, yes. You are not, <laughs> we are not living in any semblance of what the world actually is. Um, and that can be wildly scary when you think about it in those terms. But at the other sense, the ability to form predictions and detach ourselves from the world is what allows us to do what humans do. It, what, it's what allows us to push forward. So a, a very simple example I always use is when you first learn letters and you don't know how to read words, letters are everything. So if I show you a sentence with a bunch of misplaced letters, it doesn't matter. You can pick them out left and right. Once you know how to predict letters, turn them into words, the reason you can read words is because you no longer have to focus any attention on letters. You just know what they should be. And this is why we, we rarely catch typos in our work or when we're reading a book because we're not actually focused on the letters. A young kid would pick up and say there shouldn't be an F there, but as an adult, it doesn't matter if there's an F there because I'm on to the next level. And once we can predict sentences, we no longer have to focus on words. And once we can predict paragraphs, we no longer have to finish or focus on sentences. So our ability to predict really skews what we can understand, but that is the tool which says, cool, what's the next cognitive level you want to reach? You want to go to Mars? Congrats. It's going to mean you're going to miss the color of your wife's nails. Uh, it's one or the other. And is that primarily based on energy efficiency? Yeah. It, 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 I think that there's two arguments you can make for it. And I think the, the primary one is, yes, that is at the end of the day, your frontal lobe, in order to tweak, to change programs, to build the brain, to adapt, requires an absolute ton of energy. So if you take all the energy in your body right now, your brain's already using 20 to 25% of it. It's just already a sap. But if your coder was on, your frontal lobe constantly tweaking and changing things, we estimate you'd really only be awake about three hours a day. That's how much extra juice this thing needs to be live, present, taking in information with no filter, and it's just impossible. So yeah, I, I, I think the best argument for it is exactly what you said. It's, a, it's an energy saver, which allows us to push forward. You know, the other thing when I said, wow, I just got all these goosebumps that I wanted to cover uh, was also, look, I'm a fan of Tony Robbins, love him or hate him. And one of the things he constantly talks about is, you know, you're in a certain state that state is not serving you. My job is to get you out of that state so that we can put you in a better one. And he does a ton of work around it. You know, he has warm-ups and breathing and he'll shock people and he'll cuss at you. And if you've seen the, the documentary and part of me is like, look, he's a smart guy. He's been successful, et cetera. I'm sure he knows what he's talking about. But part of me is like how much of this is based in science. And it sounds like at least on a topical level, the idea of, if we want yeah. to change, make positive change, that that is actually a useful strategy somehow to to get us or someone else out of their their future self and into that moment so they can change the story for the better. Is, th is that true? 
absolutely. The, the execution might be a little uh, uh, shaky at times, okay. but the concept is spot on. Is this idea that, okay, if I ever want to change your story, I got to get you in the present. I've got to access your coder. And if you think about it, that's essentially what teaching is all the time. As a kid, you come in, and as a teacher, I have to say, okay, you have conceptions about how the world is. I've got to get new conceptions somehow in there, which means I've got to do something to cancel out your prediction and get you into the moment. And now we can start learning. So it, you can feel it physically. I think the best examples are the easiest examples are always uh, physical. So if you're driving a car, remember how hard it was learning how to drive a car, like how miserable that was? Oh, for sure. And I learned on a stick shift, so it was even harder. Oh, makes it worse. So that perfect. So I live in Australia now. So same thing. I learned in the U.S. on a stick shift. Cool. Hardest time of my life. But when I finally got it, it got to the point where driving was just a total prediction. I could drive for an hour, pull into my garage, and not, not know even how you got realize there. what had happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, scary. Yeah. I hated those moments because it was just a demonstration of how prediction I am. I just was letting this program run out. But as soon as I moved to Australia, where now the stick shift is on the other side, oh boy, I can't run my prediction. So every time I sat in the car, I would zip into the present moment and I would have to actively think. I had to try and change my driving routine. So, so same thing. If, if you haven't moved countries, the second a deer jumps in front of your car, congratulations. That's the sensation of being in the present. That jolt you get, mm -hmm. that's the feeling you need to access your coder. Which is why I could maybe – and I, I, I don't know much about Tony Robbins, but if he's yelling at you and swearing at you, I guess what he's trying to do is cancel out your prediction. Get that prediction to fail so dramatically mm -hmm. that you have to, to land in the present, and now we can start to do some work and tweak some stuff. We've all just heard one way we can get into the present. We can challenge that coder, as we've been calling it, and that is through learning. But there's actually three ways – that we can do that, and I'm going to leave that as a teaser. The other thing is we will eventually be getting to your book, which is Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. So for those listening that are loving this and also wanting to see how can it directly impact our life, how can we use it, stick around. That's the teaser. Because I do want to pause for a moment and just learn a little bit about the man who's been dropping some knowledge. All right. So you mentioned a few things. I, I know uh, you're a neuroscientist. I know you are in Australia. You wrote this book. Tell us a little bit about a how you got to Australia because you're not from there. And then B, no. uh, why you chose this field. Oh, perfect. So Australia chasing a woman. You went, when you find love, you got to go. My no, wife really is... go all the way around the world. She, she's she's a special woman. Much to the chagrin of my family. So I, my, my wife is a so – she's Melbourne born and bred, and she's a psychologist. So when I first met her, she wanted to move to the U.S. I was living in Boston at the time. Mm. And um, unfortunately, they, the U.S. doesn't recognize Australian credentials. So psychologist here for 10 years, but if she would have moved there, she'd have had to go back to school, start from scratch. So I just said, well, screw it. At the time, I was in academia – I'll just come out there. Wow. And so that was 10 years ago and never, never looking back. I love it out here. By the way, Jared, I would love to hear the dinner table conversations between a neuroscientist and a psychologist. 
Like, do, oh, you, do you guys so... ever just talk about basic stuff? We everyone is like, wow, you guys must be cool. No, we <laughs> never talk shop at home. My wife has no clue what I do, and I have no clue what she does, and we keep it that way. That's when weird. we talk. We talk about wine. Maybe sports. If she's in a good mood, she'll let me talk about that. <laughs> Books. That's about it. That's all we talk. That <laughs> so it's kills me. Near as fun as you think. Oh man, that's pretty good. All right, sorry, I interrupted you. So the woman takes you to Australia, uh, and tell us about this field. I mean, you were in academia, but was the brain always something you were interested in? Were you trying to solve a specific problem? Yeah. So I, I was originally a teacher back in the in the U.S. when I lived in L.A. is when I started teaching. And I got this wild notion that if I could solve the brain, then I could become a better teacher. Um, it totally did, didn't pan out that way. That's not how the game works, unfortunately. But that was where I decided, OK, if I want to solve the brain, I got to go back to school. And so that and once you put one foot in front of the other in front of the other, crazy stuff starts happening. And at some point I end up in the medical field. I'm doing surgery with epilepsy patients at one point. I'm now I'm, I'm over here, um, working with schools and teachers and principals on leadership principles. And it's when I was doing it, when I'm going along this path, it all feels totally normal. But when I take a step back and look, I'm like, man, that is just a crazy circuitous route. And I don't know, I don't know what to expect next i'm just kind of going one day at a time with it all well that's interesting because we have a lot of people write in i mean the show was kind of founded on this idea of finding out what you want to do being exposed to multiple areas and of course it's changed over the years but it sounds like when you said you know i was just putting one foot in front of the other and it, it felt normal was it normal i mean because to most people this idea of going back to school after starting your professional career is actually incredibly risky it's a tough situation yeah. Add on top of that, moving, you know, across the, the world. Um, can you can you put us back <laughs> in that decision making process? Because it sounds like where you've gotten is the right place for you. It's it's it, everything worked out perfectly. But I think I think there are definitely extenuating circumstances that work better. So we still don't have kids. At the time when I started my journey, I was single. So you don't have to pay. I mean, you pay rent, but who cares? You can live like a, a schlub. And so <laughs> it, it was definitely easier when I started than it is now to make big changes. But I think the one thing, the one lesson that's kind of driven me through all of this. So I'll tell you my very first start. So I'm a teacher and I read Norman Doidge's The Brain That Changes Itself. Have you read that book? I have not. I've heard of it, never read it. I had to do a mental oh. check because I've read so many books on the topic. Is that <laughs> is that is that one that needs to be added to the list? That was my breakthrough book. So let's put it this way. As I read all this popular neuroscience stuff when I was younger, and then I think it's the same with every field. Once you get deep into it and you've been doing it for 10 years, you go back to those popular books and you go, oh my God, those are horrible. Like those aren't even close. Wow. Norman Doidge's book is the only one that I come back 10 years later, I read it and I go, it's still good. He wasn't cutting corners. He wasn't lying. He was just telling a really solid story. So I just, I, that was the book that kind of said, okay, maybe I want to go down this route. And he has a chapter in this book about brain stimulation. So non-invasive brain stim, can we use magnets and electricity to stimulate the brain? And he interviews some dude from Harvard Medical School. Um, some big professor named Alvaro. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. Now at the time, I'm a bit of an idiot. So I don't know. I don't think heads or tails about this. So I just send Alvaro an email, not even thinking 
okay, he's a professor at Harvard Med. He he won't care about me. It's just like, hey, let's I'll send this guy mail. A year later, I'm working in his lab. And wow. that's the one thing I've learned throughout this whole thing is nobody is off limits. It doesn't care how big, famous, powerful, if they've won a Nobel Prize, if you're just a genuine person interested in their work and you get in touch, every door opens for you. And looking back on my past, that's the only – I've never been afraid to contact the next person I wanted to work with. So I work with Elvaro for a couple of years. I then find a guy who's um, leading the brigade in educational neuroscience, email him. I'm in his lab two months later. And you just keep one foot in front of the other. Find the next person you want to work with, give them a call, and go work with them. Okay, so you've probably noticed some exciting changes this week. We've got a new logo, and we're part of Himalaya. So this week, we wanted to recommend another show on Himalaya that's worth checking out. Context with Brad Harris. Join Brad Harris, an award-winning historian from Stanford University, as he interprets the biggest forces shaping our history from the rise of civilization and the invention of modern science to the spread of disease and the growth of globalization, all on his new podcast called Context with Brad Harris. Part of the Himalaya Network, each episode concentrates on the most important books that provide insight on these aspects of our world, often featuring conversations with the authors themselves. Brad Harris distills the scholarship to offer captivating narratives about what is good and what is true in the work of civilization. Subscribe to Context with Brad Harris on your favorite podcast player. Learn more on his website, bradharris.com, and don't forget to check him out on Himalaya. To me, that ties back to this idea of the stories driving our actions, really. I, I really think there's this untapped potential when we understand how the brain works in that, you know, there's self-preservation that, that we go for and we want to avoid failure, but it's a story. And so here's why I'm yeah. saying this, right? Your story is, well, I can reach out to anyone. It, it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just yours. But here's the key. Yeah. That story provides a certain action and that action is probably going to get you better results than an alternative story, which is, well, I can't talk to them. Right. And this Ooh. was, this was really highlighted for me recently. I was on the phone with, as I mentioned, I'm a consultant at this company and I do these workshops. I was on the phone with um, one of our leaders talking about how I was considering writing this book, uh, trying to kind of uh, increase my speaking appearances and fees and all that. And she said, oh, okay, you want to go that route? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it seems pretty easy. It's straightforward. Like I, I'm no doubt I could do it and be there in about a year. And she just stopped and she said, I completely agree with you, but I want to highlight something for you. The reason it seems so easy and positive and, and, and obvious to you is because you've spent the last eight years interviewing people who have all done that. And, yeah, yeah. and what that highlighted for me was that is just a story that seems so obvious that I am positive I could do it, right? And the reason yeah. I tell that is because there's listeners out there that want to become a speaker or an entrepreneur or start a business. And it's just kind of check that story. And is it serving you in the sense that it leads to the actions that are going to get you the best outcome? Go back to the to the idea of the coder, the front, the prefrontal cortex being able to tweak everything else. If So I call it the coder. If the coder can change all of this, 
then you have to ask what drives the coder, and that's where you say your story. Your stories drive your coder. Your coder then changes things and drives your perception. And it, it, I know it sounds new agey and cute and fluffy, but this is what we talk about when we talk about the brain now. This is the world we live in, that your stories will tweak what you see, what you hear, what you taste. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean literally the colors you see will change when you change your story. Now, the, the, the big joke is when the change happens, because the change is neurological, you oftentimes don't notice it. So if we always say if, if one day we changed grass to the color pink and we just wanted to see the grass as pink, we'd start seeing it as pink, but it wouldn't be shocking or amazing to us. We wouldn't all of a sudden go, wow, it's pink. We'd say, yeah, of course it's pink. So when you change your story, not it's not always this aha moment where everything shifts because the shift happens neurologically you often just start living that story without recognizing how different and unique your perception is now compared to what it was in the past mm. so i'm 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 with you 100% the stories drive the coder the coder drives our perceptions so the story is everything yeah and it's funny because as we talk about it, it makes complete sense to me but it's because i i just watched your ted talk for the second time so let me let me pause here and talk about you know we have the prefrontal cortex most everyone listening is aware of that that drives everything else you call it the coder though and tell us why that's the nickname you gave it so we used to think about the prefrontal cortex we used to call it a con the controller and the idea being that, okay, if I've got all these mini brains, each running their own programs, the way the world works then is everything, senses come in through my senses, through my taste, through my eyes, through my fingers. All of those sensations trigger off these programs, and the best the frontal lobe can do is just shut the programs down. So I, I get a taste program going, I get a feeling program going, and the controller can say, you know what, I want you focused on taste, everything else turn off. And so we kind of thought it was this high order controller. It couldn't really do much other than shut down programs that were triggered by the world. And then we start digging and we realize it can do way more than that. Not only can it shut down the program wholesale, so taste comes in and it can go, no, I don't want taste to turn off. It can actually tweak each program at the neuronal level, at the cellular level. It can send signals into your taste program and say, okay, you're eating a grape. But I want it to taste like a cookie, and it will change your cells to make you physically taste a cookie. So it's not this over this high order on or off type controller system. It's actually this really minute, specific coder that can change every program however the heck it feels like it. So take – there's this one um, illusion we have. It's called the McGurk effect, and if you haven't – done it uh, your listeners can go look it up it's online everywhere but the idea is in your ears you get one sound you get somebody saying the word baba and when you're just listening you hear baba just fine then when you watch the screen you see a person's face but the person is mouthing the word gaga so now in your ears is the word baba coming in through your eyes is gaga and when you see and hear something different, all of a sudden you start to hear the, the. Although nothing's changed about the input, your brain starts to go, wait a second, something weird is going on. And you start to hear something totally wonky. Close your eyes, you go back to ba-ba, open them, look at the face, it goes back to the, the. 
And it's like, oh, this is trippy. And so for the longest time, we thought, okay, the frontal lobe isn't really playing in this. All we're doing is getting this weird mix of sensations. And now we know that when you hear dada, so when your eyes see someone's face saying something else and you hear a different word, the very first cells in your ear to fire actually act differently. So it's not an interpretation issue. We used to think Baba gets into the ear and then later down the track you interpret it as the We now know the coder is sending – when you hear the the coder is sending signals all the way back to your ear and changing the very first cells to move so that you're hearing the the from the start. So it's not a higher order interpretive controller. It is a minute on the ground dirty coder that changes every single program at the cellular level so that we experience the world according to our stories, not vice versa. I think I I had an idea that the brain interprets things differently based on our stories. But what you're actually saying is, no, our senses perceive things differently based on these stories. And then here's the, the greater question. If Perception is reality, right? What what we see, what we take in through our senses is all we can know about our, our current place, right? Our, our, our consciousness. And if yeah. those are changed on an in an instant based on the coder, which is impacted by our mental maps, it's not just we're perceiving, we're, we're interpreting it differently. We are actually experiencing it differently. Boom. You live in it. When we say you live in a different world than I do, it's not an interpretation issue that all I got to do is, you know, have a discussion with you and we'll sort it out. We see, taste, hear a very different world. Now, it, one of the best examples of this, and I'm, I'm, you may have already spoken about it on your show, so I'll keep it really simple, but it has to do with, with language. So Wittgenstein used to say language isn't just a vehicle of thought. It's the driver. And so essentially he's saying your story is guiding your perceptions. There's um, a tribe in Namibia called the Himba. And this doesn't work. So this was about 12 years ago. We've since totally ruined this tribe. <laughs> so we can't do this research <laughs> anymore, unfortunately. But they, we knew their language and they didn't have a word for the color blue. So we think, okay, if – Language, if the story drives the coder and they don't have a word for blue, then they shouldn't be able to see blue. So we went out there and did research with them, and lo and behold, their eyes are the same as ours, their genes are the same as ours. It takes them a long time to spot the color blue. It just doesn't really appear to them. And so when you ask them, hey, what color is the sky? They say it's white or it's gray. What color is water? It's gray. They, they just don't – and when, when they say that the sky is white, they're not saying I'm seeing it blue. I'm just calling it white. They're not seeing blue at all. Wait, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it because uh, well, because because here's why, right? And th- and I mean, look, I believe you. I just need to maybe I'm dense. I need more to understand <laughs> this, right? Because although although I fully understand this difference between actually experiencing a different world and just kind of interpreting a different world now. The, the yep. example you used about the cells is really is really great. I still want to argue that that doesn't mean the world is different. It's just our experience of it. So what I'm struggling with is, I mean, scientifically, I would imagine we can prove that something is the color blue. I mean, you're saying they are seeing a different color? So 
here's where you've got to now here's where we put science back in its proper place as a descriptor not as a driver so i can tell you the wavelengths of a particular thing but the experience of those wavelengths becomes all important and highly different amongst different people so yeah i can tell there's a bunch of optical illusions online where I'm trying to think of what a, a good easy one. Okay, an easy one is the dress. Remember the black and blue dress? Yeah. So I could use a scientific tool to tell you the exact wavelengths of that dress. So I know what reality says it is. But that doesn't stop 50% of the world not seeing that. They're getting the same exact wavelengths. Sure. But their story goes, oh, wait a second. That can't be blue. So it sends signals back to change how that's processed so they see it as gold, largely mm. because the brain goes, wait, it, there's no way that can be blue. So there must be something wrong. So let's tweak how we're actually processing the world to make it right. So they are so, actually seeing it as white or gray, even though scientifically, realistically, whatever you want to call it, we could prove it to be blue. That that's where we're at now. Okay. That's exactly it. So it's a lot easier to prove that with sound because it's a lot easier to measure ear cells there than it go. is to measure retinal cells. Right. But the more we see it through sound, the more we're starting to think that that must be the underlying mechanism, that the frontal lobe doesn't simply wait until all the information's in and then manipulate and interpret it. It actively sends signals back to change the processing itself to make it align with the story now let me so ask the, at you, the end oh, of the day ahead. well th there's got to be th there's a world out there i mean i'm i find it hard to believe that we don't live in something but once you start to realize the power of this so the the official term we'll use then in neuroscience is called top-down processing once you start to recognize the power of top-down processing to guide our sensations you start to get some really weird repercussions and it starts to raise wildly important questions to the point where – so if, you, if you've ever read um, – there's a whole movement in psychology called metaphor theory, which is essentially this. It says the metaphors we use drive our story, which then drives the way we perceive the world. If you change the metaphor, you change your perception of the world, not interpretation, perception. And the underlying – you take this to its extreme conclusion and you start to get really interesting insights like the idea that mathematics isn't real. It's a reflection of our sensory processing according to our stories. If we change our stories, math would change with us. So when you say that math and music are universal languages, metaphor theory says, no, they're not. They're just reflective of us right now. Change us. If we ever met an alien – on the moon, chances are they didn't use the same math to get there and they wouldn't listen to the same music we do. It's not universal. It's our metaphors that are driving it all, our stories. My question there, my follow-up was going to be, why do we use the term metaphors? Ah, uh, so Any there's idea? where now, I, you know, I, I would come in, I think the metaphor is just the simpler word for story, but the sexier word. But the, where the people who started doing this research, and this was back in the late 70s is when this field really started, mm -hmm. is they were talking about time is kind of where they got started. And this idea that we view time as very spatial, as going from left to right on a timeline, or numeracy as going from left to right on a timeline, slowly increasing. But we knew cultures that didn't have that metaphor. 
where time was either circular or time wasn't a dimension or numbers were logarithmic. And when we compared our understanding of the world to theirs, we saw these massive differences. And so that's where they came out and said the metaphor you use to understand the concept of time, of space, uh, must dictate how you then perceive time and space. They were trying to trying to use science. I, I'm trying to make it sound more scientific, but no, it's just it's the idea yeah. of the stories we use to make sense. Yeah. Did you ever see that? Um, it was. A, it came out last year. It was a movie about aliens with Amy Adams. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about because that is what I thought about when you started talking about aliens and time. I th- I, is, I don't. I want to say The Arrival, but that sounds totally wrong. I know exactly. That sounds. I think that was a Charlie Sheen movie. I you think. know what? I'm gonna pull it up. So wait, Amy Adams uh, movie. How? What would aliens? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Aliens. Let's see. <laughs> Sci-fi. Let's see. Uh, Arrival. Arrival. So it was the arrival. Yeah. Okay. That's the Boom. one. So the whole point of that book and that movie was this in action was the idea that the language of the person dictated how they perceived the world. Right. That language, that thought, that, that thought, that stories. And when she learned a different language, she lived in a different world. Yes. 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 Okay. Wow. And so if you go, I, I think another simple example is. And this, again, gets wonky. So when I say that we ruined – go back to the himba. When I say we ruined the himba, I mean they can really easily see blue now just because no. we've done so much research with them that we've essentially given them that concept. Wow. But I think one of the most interesting things is if you take a himba as a baby and you make them differentiate between, say, blue and green. And as a baby, what you do is you judge by where they're looking. So we can tell what a baby's thinking or guess based on where they're landing their eyes and how long they look at something. So if something surprising comes up, they tend to look at it longer, which means they're paying attention to it. So we can see in babies, they can differentiate blue and green incredibly easily. But once they learn the Himba language where blue isn't a word and green encompasses all of that, they lose their ability to see blue. So it's almost as if blue was there in the real world, but then the story pushed it away. And once they developed this story, this prediction of how the world should be, that drove what they were then able to experience after that. And then as adults, they no longer see blue until they work with researchers enough who keep telling them, there's this thing called blue out there. Do you see it? Do you see it? And now they see it. And now they go, okay, I can see it now. So the concepts, the stories drive the perception. But now we say, okay, as a baby, go back to your four-year-old, yeah. they're definitely seeing a world differently than I am. So how much of, of my stories, like how much do we lose when we move from childhood into learning a language and then becoming, entering school and becoming an adult in a society? How much are we losing because of that? Because the story is the driver. Right. Is there a way we can use this understanding to get more of what we want? And take that as a selfish question or not. But it feels like this is the key to accomplishing what getting more, just creating more of what we want. Is have is there anything there? You talk about that, study that, et cetera? Absolutely. So we if the story drives the coder, the coder drives your perception, and you're in charge of the story, then there has to this the number one thing I always say is that's how you learn to drive this machine. You learn that you are not a passenger or a slave to this. You are the one that's actively driving it. And the brain, because it's so passive and reactive, will just go, oh, okay, that's what you're doing today. 
you're allowed to contact researchers, sweet. And it makes that stuff possible. So I think underlying all of this is this kind of almost empowerment moment where you say, wait a second, I wasn't born a certain way. My genes aren't driving me. There is no inborn intelligence. There are no inborn skills. It's all just what the hell am I telling myself? And if I ever want to tell myself something different, cool. All I got to do is tweak my story, access my coder, and off I go. So I think there's this huge feeling of empowerment once you start to recognize this, which then says, okay, if if the key then is changing my story, how do I do that? I need to access my coder. <laughs> Stop my asking story. my questions, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know where you're going with this. I'm in your head. I'm yeah, in your prediction. You are. That's why you're a neuroscientist. Well, you you brought this. You've made the good point earlier. Is, is the first way to change your story is to learn new stuff. You, okay. it's, so this is never stop learning. Always keep reading new books and stuff. That information trickles in and changes your perception. Cool. Other two ways we know of to kind of to force access your coder. The second one is better for learners and teachers. It's We say it's change the rule set, not the difficulty. So I think a lot of the times people, they get really good at something, fair enough. If, if you ever wanna become an expert at something, you have to lock that skill down. But the joke is the better you get at any one skill, the more predictable, automatic it becomes. And the more automatic something becomes, like driving, the less chance you have of tweaking that story or changing anything about it. So that's totally fine when it comes to driving. I don't care, but unless I moved, until I moved to Australia, I had no reason to change that program or story at all. But think about if I had a story that says I can't do math or I'll never be good at relationships. Congratulations, if that story becomes automatic, man, that's a danger to try and change. It becomes so hard the deeper that story becomes. So we say change the rule set, not the difficulty. If you ever want to access a story, it's not about continuing to push that story. It's about changing the way you approach that story. And the way I always liken this, and it sounds weird, but it's video games. The reason why video games are so addictive isn't because they just keep throwing more enemies at you. It's because they always throw different enemies at you. As soon as you get good and develop a strategy, it changes the rule set. Your strategy no longer works. Now you need a gun instead of a sword. So you have to continuously change your strategy. And every time you change your strategy, you have to access your coder. So that's the second way we say to access your coder and change your stories. You have to find ways to break your own method, your own strategy, your own techniques and rules. And the third way is the easiest way, yet the scariest, but it's the most powerful as well. It's screw up. It's make errors, make mistakes. We had, there was a researcher back in, in the, he was around in the 1930s, right? His name was Lewis Terman. And he believed that IQ was everything, that a person's IQ could dictate what they were going to do in their lives. So he IQ tests 40,000 kids around California, pulls out his top 1,500, and he says, watch, these kids with the highest IQs, they're going to be the game changers. They're going to be the movers, the shakers. They're going to be leaders of industry, politicians. Keep an eye on these kids. 40 years he watches these kids. Guess how many of those 1,500 kids with the highest IQs could even remotely be called game changers or movers and shakers. Wow. I don't know. Zero. Not one. They were totally normal people, but at the end of the day, none of them did anything crazy or important. And Terman was so pissed off because he's like, oh, man, what what was, what was did I do wrong? And for years, for years, for decades, we've kind of studied these people to say, okay, what, what happened here? 
And it turned out we we figured out what happened. Well, aside from the fact that A, IQ isn't anything, and it doesn't measure anything other than your ability to take an IQ test. Yeah, I've heard that a lot recently. Oh, it's it's not a thing. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a concept we invented to help organize kids in schools. Hmm. Great. What do you do on us? Yeah. But it turns out his the big mistake he made or the big problem was he told all of these kids. So from age 10, he told these 1,500 kids, you're a genius. You're going to be a mover and a shaker. And when you're a mover and a shaker, the one thing you're not allowed to do is screw up. So all these kids, to a man almost, they started to self-handicap. Anytime they made an error, they would disengage with it and go back to doing what they know they were good at. Now, in the meantime, take all the people that we know today that are movers and shakers, put them in a scanner, have them make a mistake, have them screw up, have their story fail, and they engage with that thing like nobody's business. So we found the difference between the movers and shakers and then just typical human beings is your ability and willingness to use errors and mistakes to drive your practice and change your story. When you screw up, the people who go, yep, that must be what I need to focus on and change, always keep growing, moving, and evolving. Evolving. They look for moments of error because that's the sign that, cool, I don't get the world yet. I need to push here. Whereas people who are normal, we just kind of go through life day by day, they feel errors and they're the ones who typically turn it off and go, you know what? No, I'm going to just stick with my prediction. My story is good enough. So if you want to challenge your story, you have to seek out those moments when your story fails and love those moments because that's where change is going to happen. Do you cover this type of stuff in your book or is it more about exactly what it talks about, which is kind of connecting with an audience, being heard and things like that? We'll get much more into it, but I'm just curious uh, right off the bat. Okay, I I, I, I'm planning a three-book trajectory. The second book is going to go deeper into this stuff. What okay. I did with with the first book, with this one, is it's 12 principles of how people learn. And I wanted to keep this one as down-to-earth and practical as possible. Because if okay. you write a book that comes out and starts talking about this, <laughs> you're going to scare the shit out yeah. of me. Yeah. Well, that was my, my question was like, wait, how can I learn more about this? Because like an hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long podcast is great, but we, I need to I need to, I need this. So what, <laughs> what, what resources, you know, we'll wait for your second book, but what other resources in this field do you, do you know of? Um, if you look up, so I, I, it's really tricky because I come from an academic yeah, angle. So yeah. if you go on to Google Scholar, that's where you can look up academic papers. And if you look up anything having to do with top down, bottom up processing. But I'm not even so, going to understand that. So is it more like the, the brain that changes itself? Is that a good place to start? You know, yes, that okay. is boom. You nailed it. That is actually a really good place to open this engram because okay. that was that's that's one of the first books to quickly and easily start to talk about the idea that, wait a second, the brain isn't isn't fixed. It's malleable. And what drives it? Well, it looks like we drive it, mm -hmm. in which case, uh oh, who are we? Right. So that's a really good place to start opening this this discussion and this, this search. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what another good. I'm looking. I'm I'm actually in my bedroom, so I'm looking at my bookshelf now, trying to see if there's anything else jumping out at me. I mean, it's just so it's so it's so dense, but it's so cool. And for some reason, I just feel like the the power is in this. Like I I, I don't know. As you talk about learning. Won't we just filter everything we learn through our stories and then even use the new information to support our stories and therefore anchor them even further? 
Yes, that yes. This is where now confirmation bias and stuff starts to really come in. Absolutely. If you go into learning in a very specific way, which is my story is correct, then all learning becomes filtered through that. So you just made a wonderful point. I so I I teach if you want to call it I guess it's metacognition but it's learning how to learn. I work with people on how do you learn. And the very first lesson I give all of my students is exactly what you just said. It's called get your mind right. Because whatever you do at that first moment, whatever your story is, that's going to dictate whatever happens after that. Mm-hmm. And people start to get really trippy with this. So they go, so because I can confidently say, okay, if you have a story that says I'm no good at math and you then spend 10 hours studying math, you're going to learn very little. Not because you didn't put in the time and effort, but because your story will exactly as you said filter that stuff out. It's like the information will come in, the brain will go, well, no, no, we're not good at this, and it'll bounce back out. It won't find a home. Change your story to, okay, I can do math, spend 10 hours studying math, same exact practice, now it gets stuck in there. Now the brain starts to accept it, adapt for it, and allow that to take root. So the same pra- – now, changing your story doesn't automatically – if you change your story and say, okay, I'm good at math, you're not magically good at math now. You still have to do the learning. You still have to do the p- practice, and that's what the process of learning is all about. But that story will dictate what impact that practice and learning has. So if you come in with a lockdown story, you're toast. Now people start to say, okay, what do you mean by change the brain? And this is where I guess Norman Deutsch comes in real big is it the brain that changes itself. Is When I say your brain changes, I mean it's physically changing all the time. When I say your coder and your brain, when I say they're changing, I don't mean this metaphorically. I mean structurally, your brain is changing all the time. And when I say all the time, I mean if you – okay, j- real quick, if you're listening to this, blink. Your brain is physically different after you blinked than before. That's how the brain works is it constantly physically changes itself to change how it communicates, to allow new things in, to block old stuff out, to kind of – and this is the power of the stories in the coder is when I say that your coder is changing your brain, I mean it will physically change the way the whole thing communicates to allow that math to take root or to block that math practice out. So step one is always get your mind right and then start the practice. Wow. Otherwise, all the practice in the world just comes up against a brick wall. So, OK, a couple follow ups there. Say my goal was very shallow and it was I want to make $10 million dollars. Do you think it would be more likely that you would accomplish that goal if you did this? You said, okay, first I'm going to identify my story and we'll talk about how to do that maybe. But really, I'm going to surround myself. I'm going to immerse myself in stories that say that it's not only possible, but it is probable, right? So so say that was my only goal and I said, I'm going to spend a year, I'm going to buy every book from every rich person saying how easy it is to get rich. I'm only going to talk to people who are worth $10 million and more. I'm going to put a mantra. I'm going to put words on the wall. And maybe on the flip side, I also need to work on the story of rejection, right? So screw everyone else. Now, I'm not saying do this. This sounds like a terrible human, but screw everyone (laughs) else, right? I'm going to make that $10 at all costs. So I also change that story. And, And by change that, I mean only ingest things that tell me that is true. In your opinion... Do you believe the likelihood of accomplishing that skyrockets? Yes, so long as you then do things uniquely. So you could have the best story in the world and say, okay, $10 million is 
It's not outlandish. It's doable. And now I'm going to go spend the next two years sitting on my thumb in the corner. Well, congratulations. The best story in the world ain't going to change doing. The story only starts to really take hold and become powerful when you start taking actions. So, so long as you keep doing whatever it is that you are doing, or if it's building a company, if it's teaching, if it's whatever, now the story starts to play with the teaching and it will change how you teach and it will change the outcomes of that or the business or whatever you're doing. So the story, yes, can change all of that, but you can't rely only on the story. Right. It's story well, plus behavior. Well, and I guess then my, my thinking was, you know, if you got your story so clear and specific and all that, wouldn't that naturally lead to the actions that would turn it into reality? I guess, exactly. I guess that would, was my thing. Like, yeah, I would find it hard to believe somebody did all this work and then just didn't take action. I would almost imagine they, they get so, <laughs> it's so obvious to them that they just like walk out, build a company and have $10 million in a year. And they're like, yeah, I don't know why you guys think this is weird. No, you'd be surprised how many people think that they, they st start and stop with the story. So I work in schools a lot and there's a big movement in schools now called mindset, which is this, which is yeah. get kids stories right about learning, that it's just a process, that everyone can do it all, that it's, it's not skilled that's inborn. The problem is a lot of schools started and stopped with that. So they focus so much on getting the story right that they freaking forgot to teach the kids. Mm. So I'll go into the school with a bunch of year niners who are struggling reading because they've spent so much time mastering their story that they forgot to put in the work to make that story meaningful. So it's you don't, it, it sounds very obvious to us, but don't ever underestimate the appeal of, of changing a story to make people think, well, cool, now I don't have to go to the gym. Yeah, no, you know, that that actually makes a lot of sense because when I was doing kind of this very similar work with my coach not too long ago, and it was kind of, you know, envision what you want. And and look, I'm not talking about the secret here. That It's not this fluffy stuff. It's more <laughs> like, and I truly believe this, if you say that's impossible, you're going to feel it in every part of your body and you are not going to take action. If you say, yeah. no, this is clear, it seems doable, then the, whatever you want to call it, the cells change, the fear drops, you start taking action, right? But yeah. to your point, I could see how it's almost um, intoxicating to get so clear on the story that you almost enjoy it without accomplishing it. And then you're 80 and you go, well, shoot, yeah. all I needed to do was actually go for a walk. Yeah. And you go, that but guy, Jared, was completely wrong. <laughs> it was that dang neuroscientist, that liar. So How dare you? The, the reason I really find that beneficial and useful is because, well, A, it needs more studying on my part. I hope you put more into the world about this. But then B, I want to ask you, do you discuss in this book or in your workshops how to identify your stories in the first place. Because I'm fully aware that they become so ingrained, we don't see them as stories, we see them as truth. We actually have yeah. a model at my company, it's called the see, do, get. And it's the way you see something, your paradigm, directly impacts what you do, which leads to what you get, and then reaffirms that paradigm as reality. So do you have any tips on how to identify a story and see how it's serving us or not serving us? Oh my goodness, I totally wish I did, but here's okay. where the neuroscience just falls apart. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually think this is a really good point to recognize is science is a wonderful descriptor. We can talk about how things are happening, we can talk about why things are happening, we can talk about mechanisms behind it, but at the end of the day, 
now you say, okay, well, what stories are you running? I don't know. I'm back to square one where now I need to tap into something else. I don't know if it's psychology. I don't Mm -hmm. know if it's business, but there has to be another tool to help me uncover my stories. Right. And I simply, I, I do not, I personally do not have them. And that's where I love it though, where I can say, cool, my book, my story, my understanding ends here. Yeah. And now is when I need to start bringing in other people who know what they're talking about. And that's where you step up and go, cool, you've taken me this far. Yeah. Now I know how to get people to start to dig into and uncover their stories. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people listening actually that have ideas on this because so I'm certified as a coach and I, I teach similar things to what we're talking about. And, and my company's been doing it for 30 years. I mean, some of the things that we teach is around identifying your paradigms, which is what we essentially, what we call our stories. And so I'll give yeah. you, I'll give you a, a, an exercise that we use. Um, it's really cool, essentially, and listeners out there can can follow along. But what I would do, and I do this in workshops, is I say, okay, I'm going to tell you 10 words. So I'm going to give you a word. And then without thinking, I want you to write the first one or two words that you associate with it. So I yep. say the word cat, and somebody says dog. And then I say, you know, the word cat to somebody else, and they say allergies, right? This is yep. how it works. And then you go through. So I use things like, I'll go money. And I give them five seconds. Then I'll go a difficult colleague, give them five seconds. I'll say politicians, give them five seconds. And what <laughs> happens, and because and I, I was a student before I was the teacher in this, is like I very, very quickly realized for me when I put health down, all of the things I wrote made it seem hard. Like I'm a healthy person, but it was like work and improvement and, you know, medicine. It was, it was things that yeah. seemed like it was something I need to work on as opposed to some people write like, gratitude, grateful feeling, you know? So anyways, that's one quick thing, um, that, that I think helps. And I'm putting a note down to, to dig more into this because I think, I love that. Yeah. Identifying stories is, is so critical in what you and I've been talking about for over an hour now. And it reminds me, there's a, there's a thing you might want to look up to called the implicit association test. And it's something we use in psychology a lot where – and it's it's almost exactly like that where it'll give you a word. Then it will really quickly give you two choices and you have to click one or the other. Oh, cool. And it's kind of how we discern implicit biases. We try and get people answering before they're cognitively thinking. The underlying the, – where it gets tricky is when you start to go, OK, given enough time to think, right. I might select a different order. Yes, or exactly. Because exactly. your brain – but here's the thing. Actually, what you're talking about, I feel like your coder is online. Because if I say to you right now, I say money, and the first word that comes to your mind is you know danger, then your coder goes, wait, don't write down danger because that's a bad story. And we've been talking about stories for an hour. So the yeah. right answer is abundance, and then you write down abundance. And now it's not real, right? But is that how you change it? Does it does it require oh, that shit. much drilling right. until abundance becomes your automatic? There's um a program online called Smiling Mind, and it was a mindful or um uh not a mindfulness program, but a like an emotional regulation program. So for people who are depressed, if I throw up a bunch of smiley faces on a screen, yeah, with like one sad face. Most depressed people will hone in real quick on the sad face no matter where it's at. Wow. And so what this program does is is it just goes, cool, we're going to play this game 100 times a day, except I'm going to force you to look for the smiling face. I'm going to give you a bunch of frownies and one smiley. And you just drill, drill, drill looking at that smiling face until eventually you come out the other side 
and it's really easy for you to find the smiler. It's almost as if your implicit association changed. Your word for money went from fear to comfort just because you kept saying it. So maybe that is one way to change stories is you you get your implicit association. Your coder recognizes and say, oh, that's actually a bad story. Let me change it. And you just keep practicing that change until it becomes your new implicit association. Yeah. Maybe that's not a bad thing. I really want to solve this problem. I really want to because imagine we got to a point right where you could just I'm not going to say take a pill, but do an exercise, change your story. Just imagine I feel the the just the emotional shift it would create in so many people. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Do look if there's if somebody out there can get me Tony Robbins, get him because I feel like he talks a lot about this. <laughs> but anyways, Do you want me to? Can I can I leave you with one last mind blowing thing? Yes. So we have one final issue, which which I I don't talk about. Well, I do kind of talk about in the book, but not much because it's it's one of these equally trippy issues. So we have this issue with memory, right? Where okay, so we don't know where memory is stored. We don't even really know what memories are. But one thing we do know is anytime you access a memory from your past, you reconstitute that memory. So you if you think about what you had for breakfast this morning, so far as the brain is concerned, that memory is no longer in your head. It's now reconstituted on what we call your working memory bench, which means it's live and active. As you recall a moment, it's live and active in your brain. And when you're done thinking about it, you have to then restore it. So the interesting thing is whenever you reconstitute a memory, you will tweak it, change it, morph it, move it to match your current story and then put it back differently. So all of our memories of our past, the vast majority of them, and this is where things get really trippy. Our memories of our past don't reflect our story then. They reflect our story now. We're constantly tweaking our understanding and memory of our past to match what we have, the understanding we have today, which is why it's so hard to, to remember what it was like to be a teenager. Even when you have one, you think, oh, I was never that bad as a teenager. Yes, you were. It's just you're not that now, and every time you think about being a teenager, you're <laughs> changing that memory to suit your current story. So you can kind of see the, this this concept in action. I remember I was at Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. My brother, we were all around the dinner table. My brother was had a little too much wine, and he was getting this sob story about how when we were kids, we were in the mall one time, and we must have been about three and four. And he was looking around and he got lost and he couldn't find mom, dad, or me. He couldn't find us and he starts crying and he gets scared. And then he heard us laughing and we were just hiding behind a trash can making him think he was lost. <laughs> and he's telling this story at Thanksgiving saying, man, that really hurt me. That's formed a big part of my life. I've never gotten over that. At which point I say, that's a wonderful story, Joe. Too bad it happened to me. Whoa. I was the one you guys hid behind the trash can and I was the one that thought he was lost. At which point my dad chimed in and said, no, I'm pretty sure it was your brother. My mom said, no, no, it was him. None of us have any clue what happened that day. Oh, you, you never got all, to the bottom of it. No, we don't know. But I am 100% convinced it was me. He was 100% convinced it was him because we have changed our memory to suit our story as we've moved forward. Wow. So now not only does your story dictate how you then perceive the world now – it will also dictate how you understand and perceive and remember your past as well. And that's where things start to get really massive. Oh. When you start to realize that if you change your story, uh, go back to money, about the $10 million, 
your memories about how you got to this moment, how it happened, will change to suit that story as well. Which is why I find it really difficult. If you ever read a book by a billionaire that says, here's how I became a billionaire. Right. I usually throw that in the trash can because I'm like, trust me, that's not how you became a billionaire. Right. Your memories have changed to match your story now and you're, you're telling the story as you would understand it today. I need the story from the guy who was starting from the beginning who didn't know what the heck was about to happen. Which is almost impossible because then you don't know what the ending is. Hence, you might be listening to the story of somebody who ends up homeless and broke. Exactly. So how do we pick? <laughs> it's the Black Swan. Yeah. If you ever read uh, Nicholas Tlaib's Black Swan oh, yeah. narratives, oh, yeah. it's, you can't predict these things. But once they happen, you can tweak your memories to make them meaningful. You can narratize them. But that's if, if once you reach this point, and it took me a couple of years to get over this because it is such a mind blow, is your story drives your coder, your coder drives your perception, and your memory. So your story is driving everything. You it, it drives your re, your opinion of who you are because I yeah. really think that we are our memories. And and the reason I mean this is something I've played with a lot. But imagine today you got you know struck by lightning, boom. And you could not remember anything from this moment previously. You, you wouldn't be you. Like, you wouldn't know anything about yeah. you. So the only way we are who we are is because of our memories. Therefore, if our memories are shape our, our stories, which also shape the, they shape the future and the past, that's yeah. all we are. Then we're stories. Right. Then we're nothing but a giant ball of stories. Wow. And you could you could view that as incredibly scary, which I do at times, <laughs> or you can view that as incredibly powerful and go, well, if that's the underlying pattern, sweet. Yeah. I can I can game that system. That's, I can make that work. Uh, that and that in its wow. You want to get meta? That in and of itself is a story because I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> yeah I can game that system while somebody else out there. Look, you know what? We we have to save that for interview number two. I've already taken so much of your time. Before I let you go, here's what I want to do. So first, the book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. Now, here's what I want to say to the audience, because I know, I know, I've done 300 of these. This is one of the best we've ever done. This is one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the line. That's true. If you are listening and feel that way, now, just imagine the same type of personality, knowledge, et cetera, is put into this book. And this book is really one of the things I like you said is about connecting with an audience, influencing others, whether that be your family, your customers, your clients. Give us the sales pitch now. And by the way, this is the way you communicate. Like your TED Talk was was so well done. I mean, you're, you are really great at communicating and it's going to come across in your book. Now, now sell it to us real quick. So uh, the way I always say it, and especially with, with a book like this, is a lot of people are playing the game without understanding the rules. And now with talking about stories, talking about the coder, we're starting to recognize the rules. And what this book does is it goes into 12 rules of how human beings learn. And what I love is I think intuitively you grasp a lot of these. But once you hear it laid out and you see it in action – now you can start to own that technique. You can start to make it your own. So with this book, what I, what I like to say, so it's 12 secrets of how people learn. The best thing I can ever hear anyone do after each chapter is go, oh, is that why I do blank? Or, oh, is that why my kids always act blank? We know these patterns intuitively, but once you get 
words put to them and you see the pattern itself, then you can own it and make it your own. So that's why I love this book. It's 12 principles of how people learn. And once you get that explicated, now, now you can start to make better choices in how you communicate, how you think how you talk, what type of actions you drive through other people. The only thing I want to say is it, you know, as much as everyone listening is doing it just to better themselves, better their understanding, it also has this, this purposeful part of your book, which is helping you move whatever you're doing forward. So what I mean is give us an example, and I'm not asking for like free advice. I'm, I'm really asking to show <laughs> how it can benefit so many people listening, right? We run yeah. a podcast. We've got listeners. Our primary goal is to grow. That's it. It's not monetization. It's just grow. More people reach more, do more, you know, help more. How yeah. can something like this book help us as a business, a small business, accomplish that goal? So let's just take, let's, I'm happy to go through, let's just take chapter one. So chapter one is written text and spoken word do not mix. And so there's a really cool kind of activity your listeners can go try right now. Turn on the TV or the radio just to a talking head show. So even while listening to this podcast, what I want you to do is try and listen to this podcast and understand the words while reading a book and trying to understand the words you're reading. And what people learn really quickly is it is impossible to listen to somebody speaking while trying to read something at the same time. You can't do it. And I, in the book, I go into the, the brain for why the two things clash and why you can't do them simultaneously. But then you pull back out and go, okay, if it's impossible to listen while reading, what impacts does that have for us for, say, influence? And you start to really quickly go, okay, PowerPoint slides. Let's say I'm giving a presentation while behind me is a ton of words and bullet points on a slide. Well, congratulations. You've now asked your audience to do the impossible. They cannot listen to you while trying to read that at the same time. They're going to try and jump back and forth, and they're essentially going to learn nothing. Okay, well, what about handouts? What if I'm making a pitch and I give them a, a big handout? Well, congratulations. They cannot read that handout while listening to you pitch. Um, so it's it's – from this simple rule, we then expand it to go, oh, shoot, here are some simple applications that I can start to go, if that's how people learn, let me just tweak this, that, and the other. Let me put the handout after I pitch, or let me replace words with images on my slides. And we start to just have a bigger influence. Our message gets across cleaner, and we can start to really impact people better because we're not asking the impossible of them. Right. We're not we're not essentially violating some of the the rules of our brain. And and when we do that, no matter how great one aspect is, our our pictures, our PowerPoint, our words, etc., it just won't matter. And that's what we go back now to what I was saying about the we get this intuitively. I think a lot of listeners will hear this and go, Oh, is that why I always hate when I have to sit through a PowerPoint presentation? Mm -hmm. Or oh, is that why no one remembered when I gave this presentation? Bingo. You know this stuff happening. All I want to do is come in and give you the reason why so you can start to tweak and change and make it better for yourself. So you can go, the reason they couldn't remember is because I was asking them to multitask and they can't do that. Easy, easy fix. I'll just break A from B or I'll do C instead. It's simple fixes once you know the rules. The problem is most people never explicate the rules. Wow. Well, Jared, look, I, first of all, I have to tell you, thank you so much. Just, I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, and that was fantastic. 
You can grab Jared's book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick, tomorrow, March 12th. And as always, it'll be available on Amazon. And if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Did you check out the new podcast cover art? What do you think? Give us some feedback. Email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at smartpeoplepod. And if you have a minute or two, head over to iTunes and Apple Podcasts and leave us a review over there. To those paying attention to the artwork, you might notice that our network is on there. We're now on Himalaya. So head over to Himalaya and download their podcast app. You can get there, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash hi. That'll take you to the show's page over on the Himalaya site, and you can download the app on the iOS app store or on the Google Play store. So as you can tell, there's been a bunch of changes, and we'll have some more announcements soon. So make sure you stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter, and we will see you all next episode.